Please open your scriptures to the book of Hosea. That is an appropriate song, one I requested because of the theme. Because after God moves upon His people, they are undone. They fall again before the Holy One of Israel. Hosea, if you're using one of our Bibles, you'll find that on page 751. I'm asking you to turn. I'm seeing these looks like, where's Hosea? Um, These are probably the most unfamiliar books in our Scripture. Uh, So Hosea, in our text this morning, is the entire book. And so Ethan has put a timer up here on the screen that counts backwards. It's a very nice tool. Now you're you're tempted to want to come up and see it. Well, Tuesday is Valentine's Day. And I'll be taking small, modest collections for those husbands uh, to whom that was a reminder. Okay, Valentine's Day is on Tuesday. And so love is on many people's minds. What is love? Uh, One familiar saying says, love is blind, marriage is an (laughs) eye-opener. Really, you shouldn't laugh at that, right? Okay, I don't agree with that. Just like uh, uh, Chelsea Peretti's quote, if you text, I love you to a person, and the person writes back an emoji, no matter what that emoji is, they don't love you back. Right? I don't agree with that either, because I do send little heart emojis to my wife. Uh, love, love doesn't have to be blind, so take Will Farrell's advice, who says, before you marry a person, you should first make them use a computer with slow internet service to see who they really are. Right? Well, there are several things that work against us this morning outside of poor definitions of love, and one of those is our culture. Our culture's customs and understandings and love and what marriage is, is going to, it's going to work against the context of the minor prophets. Especially, it's going to work against the context of Hosea, which is framed around a marriage. The fact that we turn to the Old Testament, there are some people that have a default setting in their minds that the old cannot possibly be better than the new. And so we're already turning back to a section of Scripture that is typically a lot more unfamiliar to us. I want to remind us what the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. That includes the Song of Solomon. That includes Leviticus. That includes the Minor Prophets. And Paul also writes in Romans 15:4, for whatever was written in former days, he's referring to the Old Testament, was written for our instruction. The fact that these are called minor is curious. And so if you look, if you were to go to the table of contents in your Bible, uh, from Isaiah to Malachi, those are all called prophets. Some are called major and some are called minor. From Isaiah all the way up until right before Hosea are major prophets. That simply means they're longer writings, not more important. Minor prophets are typically shorter writings, not less important. The minor prophets are from Hosea through Malachi. Typically, they would at one point fit all on one single scroll, and it was called the Book of the Twelve. So all twelve minor prophets were able to fit on one scroll. And the fact that these are overview sermons. There is one sermon basically per book 
And that'll be a challenge, and that is a departure from how we typically preach here at Highlands, where we take a small section of Scripture and we preach it expositorily. The overview sermon will still be, in a sense, expository preaching, as the text uh, will govern the theme of the sermon, uh, but we're taking a much larger scope of Scripture. Here's the common theme. Sin, judgment, mercy, and hope. Sin, judgment, mercy, and hope. This is our theme this morning. God loves with loyal and unfailing love. God loves with loyal and unfailing love. So let's begin with context. Look at verse 1 of Hosea. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. There's your historical context. The author, Hosea, also referred to as Hosea, or Joshua, or New Testament, Jesus. The name means salvation. Hosea is he's unique in that he was born in the north. Okay, this is after the time of Solomon's reign. The, the, the kingdom is divided. You have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. You have Israel. You have Judah. And Hosea was born in the north, and he ministers to the north, and he is the last voice to the north before the Assyrians come down and conquer them. Hosea is a contemporary of Isaiah, and this is a very interesting point. If you trace the historical development in kings, during which time Hosea is ministering, he's ministering to a country that is economically prosperous. And the danger right away to America and to our congregation and to the churches in our country are the dangers and the pitfalls when things are going very well. Charles Feinberg states, in spite of the prospering of God, the people substituted outward forms for the inward reality. They were committing all manner of sin and they were in great moral and spiritual decline. So if you're taking notes, here's our outline. Just two points. Chapters 1 through 3, the first half. Chapters 4 through 14, the second half. The first three chapters are an extended story based on the life of Hosea. His life experiences contribute to the message. Matter of fact, in verse, chapter 1, verse 3, it says that he took this lady, that's marriage, he took her in marriage to be his wife. And God uses this marriage, which will become a broken marriage, to put forward a picture, sort of a living metaphor to his people. And really, this is the basic framework that's going to run through all of the minor prophets and really provides the picture of what God is sending his prophets to speak into, and that is that Israel is the unfaithful wife who has abandoned covenant with her husband. And this is very clear, the picture that is coming out right in the beginning of these 12 minor prophets. And the beauty of this, and I think you could already hear it in some of the texts that Pastor Matt was reading, is that God doesn't give up on them. God pursues them. 
God follows them. He does not give up. He is persistent because God's love is loyal and unfailing. And then chapters 4 through 14 are a network of statements. And with all the poetry and the apocalyptic statements, it's easy to get lost because there's no clear division as it moves and it calls out the people's sin and it calls them to restoration and it points them towards a future restoration. But in the second part, and we're not going to be able to totally unfold this this morning, but if you you can track it this way, chapters 4 through 14, there are three sets of threes. Okay, there are three a threefold cycle repeated three times. And here's the cycle, and you can, and you can just track this. It's, it's quite a short book. There's going to be accusation. Okay, God's going to highlight and condemn the sins of the people. Then, judgment. Threatened if they do not repent. Accusation, judgment, and then mercy. God redeems His covenant people because they are His covenant people. God loves them because God loves them. Not because they deserve it. Not because they were perfect. Not because they did all the religious cadences exactly right. No, God loves them because He loves them. So it's beautiful. You have accusation and judgment and then mercy. So the theme of Hosea and the point of the sermon is this. God's love is loyal but often spurned. Or you could say God's love is faithful, but often rejected. Or as the Jesus Storybook Bible says, the little storybook Bible that we have handed out to children here before, uh, that God's covenant is a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. I mean, it's an amazing picture of what we'll see here. So let's look at this. And really, if if we're going to form this into a call of action this morning... This is the call to action. God loves with loyal and unfailing love, so turn to Him and worship Him. And then show that kind of love to a broken world, an unfaithful world. So Hosea 1-3. to Hosea begins with two pictures to capture the message of the entire book. The first picture, Hosea's marriage to... Let's see, look at verse 2, chapter 1. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. He immediately sets the picture. So he, verse 3, Gomer, so he, Hosea, went and took Gomer. Right, Not a fetching name in our culture, generally speaking, uh, but perhaps... I had to call it to attention because the children, you know, young people will not hear anything for the next two minutes after they hear Gomer. Uh, Gomer was probably a typical name during that time. Uh, if, if, if that name is a bit of a hurdle, just this is what it means. Are you ready? Perfection. Hosea takes perfection to be his wife. The daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now the term... And I'm not going to explain this in detail, but the term wife of whoredom is most likely used in retrospect. So it's not that Hosea went and found someone of that character, but that when he took Gomer, she was perfect. She was pure. She was faithful. 
But God's saying, you go take a wife and through, through the seasons of domestic life together, it's going to break apart after the covenant. For example, we still refer to the president as president even when we talk about him in his childhood or even when we talk about him after he served his terms. For example, when in his 20s, President Ronald Reagan was a Hollywood actor. He wasn't president then, but we're still referring to him as president. So when it talks about wife of whoredoms, it's simply speaking in retrospect, but this is something she actually becomes after covenant. Notice that Hosea was the father of Jezreel. Look at verse 3. Because this is the picture. This domestic picture is the bigger picture, grander scheme of what Israel has been doing throughout the centuries. Verse 3, it says, she bore him a son. Look at verse 6. And notice what's missing. She conceived again, okay, after Jezreel, and bore a daughter. Does not say bore him a daughter. Then look at verse 8. After she weans her daughter, she conceived and bore a son. Third child, but not described as his, which is in keeping with this picture that God is putting forward to the Israelites. Here's the picture. The people abandoned their covenant commitment. And God calls it spiritual adultery. Turn with me to Hosea 3. Because here's this picture. Remember, the first section, chapters 1 through 3, is this domestic illustration of what is happening nationwide. Hosea 3, verse 1. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man. See, go again. This is after the covenant relationship of marriage. Now go back to her. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. Don't just let that slip by. I want to show you how I love. You're going to go back and you're going to take a woman who has been unfaithful and she's actually now living with another man or she is another man's. And you're going to capture her back in loving loyalty. That's how the Lord loves. Verse 1. So, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins, there's perhaps part of a, of, a, of a cult feast or an initiation rite or simply celebratory among false religion. Look at verse 2. Look at what he has to do. He doesn't just go back. He has to purchase her. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer of lethek of barley. And I said to her, I mean, he purchased her. He is compelling her against her will, but he buys her just as any other man would buy her. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man so will I also be to you. And folks, this is shocking, isn't it? We're going to be purposefully careful because of the cross generation here. But God has put it in His Word right here to read. And it's supposed to be shocking. It's a difficult narrative. 
and it is meant to symbolize what has been going on for generations on a greater scale. Israel has been playing Gomer. And folks, the reality is this. In this story, we're not the faithful covenant-keeping Hosea either. In this story, guess who we are? We are Gomer who needs to be wooed by a loyal and faithful love back to a faithful husband. But things are about to change. And this is how God is going to show His love and He's going to get His bride's attention. Because the fact that God is loving does not mean He fails to judge those who are evil and opposed to Him and unfaithful. See, this is part of where I told you one of the hurdles is our culture's view of love and our culture's low view of God. Just because God is loving does not mean He doesn't judge. Just because God is a God of grace and truth does not mean he turns a blind eye to sin. Because God loves and because God is just, he steps in and he judges and he deals with our sin. Go back to Hosea 2, verse 13. God says this in Hosea 2, verse 13. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. And here's a glimpse of grace amidst a very heavy narrative. Judgment will not last forever. I mean, that's the promise here to the Israelites. Judgment Though it will be severe and though it will affect parents and generation after generation, it will not last forever because God, as a faithful husband, will swoop in and he will purchase back his wife. Look at Hosea 2, verse 19. This is the hope, and it will be the second time we read this text this morning, but, but in, in light of this, in light of the weight and the gravity of this text, right here at the beginning, in the middle of this domestic narrative, look at verse 19. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. Grace is the objective display of the favor and goodness of God that he demonstrates irrespective of people's merits or demerits. That's grace. You receive grace not because of your attractiveness or your worthiness. Remember who we are in the story. We are unfaithful. We are covenant-breaking. Okay, we, we have abandoned our relationship. Grace is God's goodness and favor displayed irrespective of people's merits or demerits. So the first picture, Hosea's marriage to Gomer, portrays God's love. Look at the second picture. And this is still in our first part. The names that God gives to Hosea's children. And where we would initially just kind of breeze past these, because in some of your translations you'll have uh, Loruhamah, and some of you it will actually give the interpretation of the name. We'll look at that in just a second. But we're going to pass by those. But what's interesting is that the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter, when they quote Hosea, they actually quote the text that talks about the name meanings. Look at verse 
uh, 1 verse 4, Hosea's first child named Jezreel, which means God scatters. There's a valley in Jezreel. That's where the Assyrians are going to come down. That's where they will be scattered as his people. Look at verse 6. Gomer's daughter is named Loruhamah, which means not loved or, and there's a close definition, either not loved or no mercy. These are ominous. I mean, these are, these are almost fearful when God says, not loved, no mercy, scattered. I mean, that, that should cause an emotive response. Then look at verse 9. Gomer's second son is named Lo-Ami, which means not my people. Scattered. No mercy. Not my people. Judgment is coming, but what will happen after that? Look at Hosea 2, verse 23. Because in the midst of judgment, there's hope. Remember that? Sin, judgment, mercy, hope. These are the themes. Sin, judgment, mercy, hope. Look at Hosea 2.23. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my... What's the next word? I will show my love to the one I called, not my loved one. I will say to those called, not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. What just happened? You're only two chapters into 14 chapters. You're in the midst of this, if you would call it a domestic nightmare. And God reverses the meaning of the names right there, right at the beginning. So you have sin, judgment, mercy, and hope right there. So the one I said, not my people, I'm going to call you my people. God's love is unfailing. It is loyal So look at Hosea 3, verse 5. I mean, who will receive this mercy, this reconciliation? Hosea 3, 5 says, it will be those who, quote, afterward the children of Israel. After what? Sin? Judgment. Afterward the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to His goodness in the latter days. This is a fascinating verse because it mentions David. But Hosea is prophesying 200 years after the life of King David. So Hosea is looking to another David, a better David. Someone in the line of this Davidic king who is the Messiah. Listen to what Paul says when Paul quotes Hosea 2.23. Here's the reference, Romans 9.25 When Paul explains in Romans that Gentiles as well as Jews would know salvation through Christ, they would become his people who were not. Paul says in Romans 9.25, as indeed he says in Hosea, quote, those who were not my people, I will call my people and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. Now, this affects most of us in here because now he's not just talking about God scattering and calling his covenant people not his people. He's actually opening up, if you would, the gates or breaking down that middle wall of partition. And now he is inviting not just Israelites, but Gentiles to be called his children. This is an amazing story about a faithful God who calls people back to him in spite of their unfaithfulness. Isn't that good news? And folks, we need to hear this this morning. 
God is going to faithfully call you and me back because his love is loyal and faithful, even though we are unfaithful. Now, as we survey the rest of Hosea, chapter 4 through 14, we're going to see how God's love would be displayed to such a wayward bride. So the second part of Hosea, 4 through 14, there are three specific themes. Sin, repentance, restoration. Okay, I've given you a lot of little sets, a lot of mini outlines, uh, but, but just track here from 4 through 14, you're going to see this, this cycle, sin, repentance, restoration. First in this section, we see the sin of God's people. Look at Hosea 4, verse 1 and 2. And, and I, want you, I want you to know this before we read this text. Sin challenges God's love. Okay. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge, He has a lawsuit to bring against you. Right? Sin, sin isn't what we just typically treat it as a, an oversight or an oops. He is bringing them into His courtroom. And Yahweh says, I have a charge against you. Here's the Almighty Judge, the Holy One, and He says, I have a charge to bring against you who live in the land. Look at what He says. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There is only cursing, lying, and murder, stealing, and adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Notice how many infractions there are here to the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. I mean, he is just systematically undoing them based on the overview of the law. Hosea does not use mild terms to talk about sin. Notice, notice the three kind of general categories. There is no faithfulness. What is he saying? When he looks at the, the northern land of Israel, he looks down and he sees the actions and the attitudes of the people and he says there's no trustworthiness. There is no reliability. There is no dependability. Then he says there's no love. This is that word that you're going to see keep coming up. The, the loyal, faithful love of God is absent among His people who were supposed to be missionaries. They were supposed to be, as a nation, a light to the world. But there's no love. And then no acknowledgement of God. Disobeying the Lord is not the minor, inconsequential thing we often pretend it is. When we allow a low view of God, and our culture has not just allowed it, they have promoted it and marketed it. And when we allow a low view of God, you know what follows? A very low view of sin. And all of a sudden, the terms repentance and judgment become offensive even to those who gather in God's church in His name. And that's because we have slowly allowed the world's ideas of who this God is to seep in and affect who we are. A low view of God and the resulting whoring after sin is not just the way it is. It's spiritual adultery. And God calls us back. In His love, He calls us back. Remember what 
Remember what Hosea had to do. He had to go and he had to purchase his wife back as a prostitute just to get her back in his dwelling. And folks, this ought to help us have a higher view of God's holiness and a much more accurate view of the exceeding sinfulness of sin. That's why Hosea 4.6. Look at Hosea 4.6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. It's not that they didn't know Yahweh, but they didn't have an accurate knowledge, an understanding that affected their actions. Look at Hosea 6, verses 6 to 7. And here God is going to put it back internally into their hearts. He's going to remove just external religion. And He says this in Hosea 6, verse 6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. Right? Stop burning the sacrifices if your heart is not connected to it. Or he might say this, I desire steadfast love and not regular giving in the church offering. Does he desire the latter? Yes. But it doesn't mean anything if your heart's not connected. I desire steadfast love rather than all your standards. I desire steadfast love. I mean, just fill in the blank. And the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant and they dealt faithlessly with me. See, so it's not really about Hosea and Gomer. It's about who? God's people and God. So external religion apart from the heart never pleases God. God first desires love, not sacrifice. He desires a true knowledge of Him rather than external religion. And really, isn't this why we seek after sin? Isn't this why even when we gather to worship a holy God, so often we're fixated on ourself? Isn't the reason that we follow hard after sin is because we're not satisfied in God really? That the reason we can get so upset about things that touch this life is because I have failed to find true, deep satisfaction in Jesus Christ. As Paul says, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. And when we are satisfied in God, and when Jesus Christ is our true treasure and our delight not just on a Sunday morning, but our delight on a Tuesday afternoon and a Thursday morning, we will radiate that love to a lost and broken and unfaithful world. You see, the Israelites did not see any obligation. They didn't have that covenant knowledge operating and, 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 and affecting their actions. Because of relationship, there's obligation. How many, how many of you have driven past someone on the highway who was changing a tire and it looked like they were having difficulty? How many of you have done that? I'll just take a breath here from the heaviness of this. Okay, how many of you have actually done that? Like, oh, look, <laughs> they can't get the jack under. No, it's not that you're laughing. Uh, how many of you stopped and, uh, yeah, how many, how many of you stopped and helped? Okay, some of you. Well done. Um, how many of you have ever driven by someone, even though it looked like they're struggling. Right? I know you were doing 70 on the interstate, and by the time you pulled over, you were two miles ahead, right? and it wasn't safe. Are you obligated to help a stranger 
jack up their car? Are you obligated? A stranger? Not necessarily. We're going to say typically no, right? There might be a responsibility to us as believers or whatever if it's a dangerous situation. Okay, let me ask, um, Valentine's Day is coming up Tuesday. Okay, men, if you were to drive by C470 and you can see your car off the side of your other car, her car off the side of the road, and your wife is struggling to jack up that car, and you just drive by, right? Meet, meet, right? And I, I think you should raise your hand. How many of you have ever done that? Right? And the reason I can say that is because no one, why? Relationship obligates you to certain responsibilities, right? And the Israelites had a relationship which obligated them to obey. You and I have a relationship. I mean, we have family relationships, we have church relationships, but I'm primarily talking about this vertical relationship between us and God. And because of at that relationship, we are obligated to obey. Listen to what Jesus says. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Obedience because of relationship. Look at Hosea 10. Actually, go to Hosea 5, verse 15 first. See, the Israelites did not acknowledge obligation. Let's use that word. Hosea 5.15, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. And in their distress, right, judgment, and in their distress, earnestly seek me. Acknowledge God and sin rightly. That's really the first big point of the second section, verse chapters 4 through 14. Acknowledge God rightly for who he is and acknowledge sin rightly for what it is is, I will return again to my place, okay, there's this intended pulling away and a scattering of his people until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. Now go to Hosea 10 and look at verse 13. So why acknowledge God and sin rightly? Because both have consequences. Hosea 10 verse 13. You have plowed iniquity... You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. Therefore, the tumult of war shall rise among your people and all your fortresses shall be destroyed. You know, discipline is actually a glimpse of God's grace too. Discipline and judgment and the word distress is intended to bring us back to him. This is what the writer of Hebrews says. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Again, that sounds a lot like acknowledge your guilt and earnestly seek God. And after distress is designed to do that. So not only acknowledge God and sin rightly, but, but secondly, return or repent. 
If sin is the problem and sin brings judgment and that judgment is distress, then what's the way back to God? And really, we just kind of defined the word repent, didn't we? If you're following hard after your way, your sin, unfaithfulness, covenant breaking, he removes himself, you're removing yourself. What is the way back? And the way back is the very message of what Jesus comes preaching in Mark 1.15. Repent, turn, and believe. Look at Hosea 6 verse 1. Hosea says we return through repentance. And this is where we find mercy amid judgment. Look at Hosea 6 verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord. For He has torn us that He may heal us. He has struck us down and He will bind us up. Turn to the last chapter, Hosea 14. It's going to use the same word. It's going to use the word return. Hosea 14, 1-3. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Right? Take words with you. Confession of sins. Say to Him, Forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. There's confession of sins turning to praise. Verse 3, totally depend upon God and nothing else. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses and we will say no more. Our God to the work of our own hands. Right? Idolatry. Look at this. I love this text. In you, the orphan finds mercy. Confession of sins. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Commitment of themselves to the Lord. Verse 2, receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Praise. Total dependence upon God. Assyria will not save us. The work of our hands will not save us. But even the orphan finds mercy with you. Well, do you know the rest of the story? Israel did not return. Israel did not repent. And the Assyrian Empire did come down and destroyed the kingdom of Israel a few years after Hosea's ministry. And in distress, they would again know their God. So finally, let us set our affections on this, the hope of restoration. We acknowledge God and sin rightly. We return and we have hope in a final restoration. Look at Hosea 13, 14. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? Does that sound familiar? Where, O death, is your sting? Where, O grave, is your victory? The Apostle Paul repeating this in 1 Corinthians 15 in light of Christ's resurrection. Hosea 13, 14, I will ransom them from the power of the grave, right? The wages of sin is death. And Israel went headlong after sin and judgment came. So God steps in, I will redeem them from death. Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, 
is your destruction. So God pays the ransom like Hosea paid to get his wife back. God pays the ransom to get his bride back. Matthew, in Matthew 2.15, quotes from Hosea 11.1, where he says, Out of Egypt I called my son. This time not referring to Israel in the Exodus. This time referring to the Messiah, a king greater than David, who would also come out of Egypt to deliver, to become the Passover for his people. And Jesus' mission is clear, to seek and to save the lost. I'm going to close by reading Peter's quote of Hosea. 1 Peter chapter 2. Just listen to what Peter says. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And now he quotes Hosea 2.23 in 1 Peter 2.10. Once you were not a people... But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God loves with loyal and unfailing love. God shows his love for us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So here's the call to action this morning. In light of God's loyal and unfailing love, out of Hosea 14, confess your sins. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Commit yourself to the Lord. With those words you say, receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. And then trust Him completely. Nothing else can save. Even in you the orphan finds mercy. Believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, and you will be what? Saved. Let's pray.